It's Thursday. Today is Thursday. I've brought you the greatest gift of all. Oh, yeah? Well, in that case... Entertain me! It's showtime. Make use of the help that God puts around you. We are not a glum lot. A promise is a promise. It's very simple. Just don't drink and go to meetings. Give time, time. Easy does it. I do it. Want to have self-esteem? Just do esteemable things. One day at a time. We carry the message, not the alcoholic. Don't quit before the miracle happens! We're the Defective Characters. Three guys sitting around talking about our personal experience in recovery. Hey, I'm Mike. I'm Dennis. James here. The opinions are our own. We don't represent any particular organization, institution, or fellowship. Today, Jazz will be sharing his experience, strength, and hope with us in this episode 17 of the Defective Characters podcast. Let's go. Hey, how's it going, guys? Hey, what's awesome. up? You guys, you guys look uh, look a little older. This year treating you good? We're like a week and a half in. I feel like I aged from all the pie I ate for the last month. He still ate a lot of pie. He still can't grow a mustache, though. That, that is true. <laughs> is that supposed to happen when you eat a lot of pie? You're supposed to grow hair. You're, you're my first resentment. For I must have eaten a lot days. of pie. <laughs> uh, I, I love you guys so much, and I'm, I'm always uh, grateful when we have these moments uh, to come together, especially when it's not just us in the room. Uh, Jazz is here today. He's going to be sharing his story. And uh, James, you want to intro Jazz? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Um, so a little bit about Jazz and uh, my relationship with him. I, I met him uh, probably about two years ago, um, and he comes from London. And I, I love when he shares at meetings. Every time I hear him start to talk, I just, I drop whatever I'm doing. And I'm just enthralled with just the way his voice is so soothing. And for someone with, um, you know, about the, around the same amount of time with me, as me, he, uh, he seems to be very well put together. He drank about um, twice as much as I did. And he is just come so far i've seen him come in to these rooms and just blossom and he is such a good person and a good friend and i'm happy to introduce jazz thanks james yeah i lied uh i, I didn't drink that much <laughs> <laughs> i was a light drinker you know a couple of bottles of tequila 24 <laughs> pints of stella about half as much as you james okay uh, I'm, 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 glad, I'm glad to be here today. I'm grateful to be here today. I love AA, and I'm grateful to be one of the defective characters. <laughs> Can we do a prayer first? I would love that. Okay, so this is a step three prayer. Let us pray. Lord, I bow before you, and I surrender to you. I'm now ready to live in your world. The world before was dark and lonely. I was selfish, egotistical, and scared. I now want to be with you in your grace, in your light, and in your presence. So please inspire me to do the right thing, to make the right choices, to follow your will. I ask, that you help me to become truly aware of myself, to address my defects, and to admit them directly to you and to my fellows. When I don't understand your method, 
when I'm acting out of ego, fear, or pride, grant me the strength and courage to cast off the cloak of self-will, to stand naked before you, and to turn my thoughts and actions towards helping others. I promise that if you do this, I will try to be your humble servant, to show others that this shadowy world we live in can be full of your comfort and your light. Lord, move into my heart. Make yourself real inside me and fill my awful emptiness. Fill me with your love and Holy Spirit and make me know your will for me. Thy will be done, not mine. Amen. Amen. Okay, so this is difficult for me. Uh, because, you know, I need to kind of fit in 43 years of drinking into uh, about 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to try and give uh, a flavor of that. Um, so I drank for 43 years. Uh, from the age of 14, my first drink was to blackout. I shared a bottle of vodka with a neighbor, a uh, kid who lived next door to me. We had a, uh, his parents had a drinks party. My sobriety date is August 19th, 2017. Um, but uh, I checked into rehab on August 18th, 2017. I drank on the way to rehab. I drank for breakfast. I drank in the car on the way down there. I had supplies with me because uh, I didn't know how long the drive was going to be or if we would hit traffic. At that stage in my drinking career, I could go about 20 seconds without taking a sip of alcohol or a glug of alcohol or a chug of alcohol. The reason being, you know, if I didn't take some alcohol within 20, 30 seconds, it felt like I was holding my breath under water. It felt like I was drowning. It felt like I was holding my head under water. It felt like uh, I, w I wasn't going to survive this. I was going to panic. The anxiety roared through my system. Uh, I was full of fear at this, uh, this situation that I was in. It really felt like I was going to drown. Uh, so that was uh, August 18th, 2017. Uh, let me go back and... Uh, and see if I can remember what it was like. I remember having an okay childhood up till the age of about 10 years old. It was kind of a singular. I would go fishing by myself, I would play ball by myself, but I had friends, you know, I used to hang around with friends and, and play soccer and cricket and uh, and tag and, you know, the usual games in the street that kids play. And it seemed okay. You know, this was in England in a, a kind of country town called Ch uh, Cheshire. Uh, it was kind of middle class and we lived in a semi-detached house. And, you know, things were fine. My parents decided to move to Scotland when I was... 10 years old and uh, I'd never lived in Scotland that I was aware of I had been born there but I don't remember it 
When I moved to Scotland, I didn't fit in. I had an English accent. Uh, I tried to put on a Scottish accent, but, you know, I discovered bigotry for the first time. I didn't fit in. Yeah, I was I was a Catholic English boy that supported Glasgow Celtic soccer team. Well, you see, in Scotland, you know, you have uh, Scotland versus England. You have Glasgow versus Edinburgh. You have Catholic versus Protestant. You have Celtic versus Rangers. Uh, Rangers are the Protestant team. Uh, Celtic are the Catholic team. And it came down to even, you know, the east end of the town or the west end of the town and even what end of the street you lived on. I didn't know where I fitted in. I didn't know what the right answer was to give people. Uh, And I was trying to be liked. This, I guess, was my first experience of confusion, what I might now call the spiritual malady. Um, It gave me anxiety, a big anxiety, trying to fit in, trying to get people to, to like me, trying to adapt to the outside world. Um, I developed this kind of a, a, a filter that I talked through. I spoke through this filter and and I became very good at it. It would take milliseconds for me to assess someone's facial expression or their body language and uh, you know on the on the the subject that we were talking about to see if I was gonna say the right thing or or I was going along the right track just to fit in with this person or this group that I was hanging around with, that I was socializing with, that I was talking to. And uh, I became very adept at using this millisecond filter technique to live my life. I became an actor at 10 years old. I became an actor trying to impress people, a hypocrite, if you like. Um, It wasn't me anymore. I didn't feel like me anymore. And uh, and this went on for, I guess, the next four years, which brought me to alcohol. And I found uh, a friend of mine with a, a bottle of vodka at a drinks party, as I mentioned. And we chugged that behind a sofa. All I remember about that is blacking out and being very lustful after a a buxom 20-year-old lady. So I was 14. You know, the hormones were running riot at that time. And this alcohol freed up my inhibitions. Uh, And I woke up in a pool of vomit the next day. Um, I didn't necessarily like what happened the next day, but yeah, I liked that kind of, this is how I talk to women. This is how I I get to, uh, uh, to be a man. So I continued down that road. Uh, I joined a band. I took up the bass guitar. The other guys in the band were like 17, 18. They were drinkers. Drinking was a big thing in Scotland. Everyone I knew drank. I didn't know anyone who didn't drink over the age of 14. Uh, 
well, maybe I did know them, but I didn't hang around with them. And um, and there were names for people like that. You know, they weren't really men. They were weak. Uh, I could be more derogatory than that. I won't for the sake of the podcast. But, uh, yeah, you know, it was, uh, it was considered that men drink and men lust after women and men do a good hard day's work. Well, you know, I was happy to go along with the drinking part and be a man, and I practiced hard because I wasn't very good at it, and I I didn't want to end up in a pool of vomit every time it happened. So uh, I practiced and practiced, and that enabled me to meet girls. And uh, because I really, you know, I was scared of girls. So the only way I could talk to them was by pretending to be a man, being a hypocrite, being an actor. And the only way I could do that uh, without my filter, which was playing up from time to time, you know, where I would stammer and, and, uh, and stumble when I was talking. But the booze made me talk freely to the ladies and I was now in a rock band. And so this was working, you know. It was drinking and uh, it was girls and it was music. So rather than do a hard day's work, I decided that what I'm going to do is become a rock star. And then I can drink as much as I can, have as much women as I can get a hold of, and become rich beyond my wildest dreams and famous so I could give the finger to all the people who supported Rangers or the Protestants or the English or the Scottish or whoever it was. I didn't know, you know, but I wasn't happy. Booze made me happy, uh, but I'm still vomiting. So that wasn't so great. Uh, moving on. I went on my first date with the girl next door at 15, who everyone coveted. I got her. She was 17. We went on our first date, and uh, that was in blackout. I didn't vomit. You know, I'd been practicing. And uh, I ended up marrying this this lady, this girl, 17. You know, she was an older woman. You know, that's what I was going for. When I drank, I got the older woman. Yeah. You know, experienced, and uh, vastly more experienced than me. And this is what being a man was all about. It was all about being a strong man. Uh, I decided to move back to England, to London, when I was 19. And the streets in London are alleged to be paved with gold. Um, The lady came with me, my future ex-wife, and... uh, we moved into a room together, a kind of shared apartment. Uh, she worked in a hotel. And in between gigs, I got a job as the night porter in the hotel. It was a small hotel. But they gave me a job as a night porter uh, in case of emergency, if the if the dude couldn't turn up who was uh, it's supposed to be his job. I don't know why I didn't turn up. But uh, it suited me because I got to be the bartender as well. 
Uh, it lasted a couple of months because they noticed the tequila going down. And uh, I guess they started to put a line on the bottle. Uh, for, at age 20, I took a gig on a cruise ship playing in a disco band cruising around the Caribbean. That ended in disaster as well. We had a trial at sea when uh, when issues started to, to happen between the band and the passengers. Uh, drugs were involved at this time. I discovered marijuana. Um, that was a learning curve as well. I vomited with that. The combination of booze and marijuana uh, weren't good for me. But again, I practiced. I practiced hard. I practiced all this stuff. I practiced playing bass. I practiced with women, with booze, and with smoking pot. Well, um, we got thrown off the ship in Venezuela after the trial at sea. And I returned to London. Uh, this was a kind of a... I was broke uh, during this period, so I couldn't really drink so much. I couldn't really take many drugs. Uh, I got stuck into some kind of journeyman work, uh, you know, playing in bars and, and so on. But I aspired... There was a program uh, in England. It was called Top of the Pops. And I aspired to be on Top of the Pops. It was the Top 20 chart countdown every Thursday. And it was on at 7.30 every Thursday. It ran down from 40 to number one. I wanted to be in a band on Top of the Pops. But I had further ideas. I wanted to be in a particular pop band on Top of the Pops. And at the age of 27... Somehow or other, I got a gig with this band. Their manager called me up entirely out of the blue and said, uh, hey, would you like to come for an audition with this band? I did. I got the gig with the band and we went off on tour. Uh, that was around the UK. We were playing in like 5,000 seaters and uh, they were at the top of the charts by this time. I was the class clown, especially after tequila. I would do my uh, my piano bar Frank Sinatra impersonation with tequila. Everyone loved it. I had arrived. I was on top of the pops. The booze was working. The chicks were there. Um, I forgot to mention I was married by this time, but uh, that was kind of irrelevant. Uh, so the booze had done its trick. Uh, I was popular. And, uh, you know, it, it wasn't such a bad place to be. But this scenario lasted about three months until the glamour wore off. I knew there was something else that I needed to get. You know, this wasn't quite enough. It was everything I'd wished for. I got the chick. I got the gig. I got the money. I got the TV shows. What was missing? I don't know. You know, we went to the States. I toured uh, my first American tour as the opening act with Tina Turner. I had arrived and I could drink and things were okay. You know, this was a step up. Touring with Tina Turner, I met Tina. I had my photograph taken with Tina. It was great. You know, I was touring the States, my first United States 
experience. Uh, at that time, I guess I discovered other drugs, mainly cocaine, and the cocaine would enable me to be a bigger clown when I drank. It enabled me to drink more. It enabled me to not pass out on the floor. This was amazing. Uh, the wonder drug that went along as a lovely accompaniment to the booze, to the tequila. I wasn't drinking during the day at this point. You know, I was a professional musician. So I would uh, limit my alcohol to maybe just one before the show and then go crazy afterwards. The thing that I found was that uh, coming off stage after the show, the adrenaline was pumping, you know, and, uh, and Tina was on and I would chug the tequila. Nothing happened because the adrenaline was chugging around my system until about 30, 40 minutes later when the adrenaline ran down and I would hit the deck. I would collapse. So, you know, just as I'm talking to the latest blonde model and telling her how Tina's my best friend, uh, the tequila would, it would kick in as the adrenaline wore off and I would hit the deck in a heap and uh, the blonde model would disappear. I would wake up alone again. This went on for a long time. You know, I got to to uh, uh, to deal with the hangovers. They were bad hangovers. They were painful. I was spaced out the next day, but I didn't use booze to uh, to mitigate that hangover, the spaced outness. You know, I had all day to recover sitting on a bus traveling three, four hundred miles across the States. Uh, well, this band sacked me eventually. The reason they sacked me is that I decided the booze was getting a bit too much. So I got sober and I went into therapy. At that point, the uh, the grandiosity went through the ceiling. I decided to sue the band, thinking that that was okay while I was working with them because I was the best bass player in the world. They always told me that. They loved me. They loved my personality. They loved my playing. So it's okay to sue them, right? So I, I issued the manager with litigation and uh, and the band called me up and sacked me. I was in tears. I didn't know what to do. What did I do? I went to the bar. I started drinking again. So I picked up a gig with another band. It was the brother of a very famous British rock and roll guitarist. Who? I shall not say. Uh, but this guy was a brother. He was a very talented guy. Again, we came to the States. We came to Nashville. I was back on the tequila. Uh, I was Mr. Party. I was playing bass great. It didn't affect my playing. And I was getting on with everyone. What I started to notice was that when I wasn't drinking, I was very insular. I became depressed. I became anxious. So I looked forward to having this now three or four drinks before the show. 
This kind of went on and on. They sacked me for getting sober as well because they threatened to sack me for getting drunk. My career went like that all the way through. It went on, it got sober, wash relapse. Sober, wash relapse. Um, it got to the point in uh, when I was about 40, I started to play with a, a play bass with a, a very renowned, uh, world renowned classic rock band. Uh, I had arrived once again, I thought. The singer was sober, but he was, uh, I guess, what I would now call a dry drunk. The drummer was in the fellowship. He asked me if I had an, uh, an issue with alcohol. I didn't think so. You know, I wasn't as bad as these Alcoholics Anonymous guys. Uh, the wheels came off. It took another, another 17 years from there to get to rehab. But one of the, uh, I spoke earlier about the spiritual malady. Uh, very significant things happened. My dad died from alcoholism and uh, my drinking got worse. My baby sister died from alcoholism. She was 49. Uh, I guess I was 53. On the way to her funeral, I uh, started drinking in the morning, straight out of bed. I got to the train station drunk. I had an argument with the train staff before I got on the train. I had an argument with the train manager while the train was traveling. Drinking the whole way through, I had an argument with the passenger. I continued drinking. The police were called at one of the stations. And as they were arresting me, another incident took place and I ran away. To the other end of the train, the train continued and I continued, I continued drinking. I got to my destination, I went to a bar in the train station to continue drinking. I was smashed. Uh, the bar asked me to leave, I said no, and uh, I performed, uh, I guess what might be called in America, a lewd act. I urinated in the middle of the bar, and uh, the police were called, and I was put in handcuffs. They didn't take me to jail because I had my dog with me. So for some reason, they let me go. I continued on my travels through the train station. I had an argument with, uh, there weren't really arguments. I, I was being abusive towards the train staff. The police came again and they threw me out the station. I then got into a taxi, had an argument with the taxi driver and uh, he took me to, uh, he stopped outside of a police station, at which point I assaulted him and ran away to the nearest bar, continued drinking. Uh, I'd left my luggage in the taxi so they knew how to find me. So it's just me and the dog in a bar. The day went on like that. It got worse and it got worse. I thought I'd got away with it. I went to my sister's funeral you know, she died of alcoholism. I was not yet an alcoholic, as far as I could tell. Because, you know, my dad and my sister had died, not me. I was still alive. It was only rock and roll. Then, a couple of months later, the police arrived at the door in London. 
and they issued the summons. That was the point for me when I felt the panic arise. You know, it says on page 151 of the big book uh, to be uh, visited by the four, the, uh, the dreaded four horsemen, terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. I felt the panic arise through me. I had to chug four beers when the summons was put in my hand and the police had left. Uh, I opened it and it said public indecency. I understood this to be a sex crime. I lived opposite a school that my granddaughter went to. Everyone was going to find out. I was going to have to move away from the school. I was going to go to prison. I was going to be Bubba's girlfriend. I didn't know what was going to happen. The panic was building. It was building. It was building. I had to drink. I had to chug for that panic to go away. It didn't go away. I went to trial about six months later. I got a £200 fine. Thank God I wasn't going to be Bubba's girlfriend. But I couldn't stop drinking. I couldn't stop thinking about what would have happened if I was Bubba's girlfriend. That was the mo- that was the time I knew I had a problem. I knew I had a problem. But the problem was anxiety. It wasn't alcohol. I was only drinking for the anxiety. So it took me another four years. In which time, my last job... I retired before I got fired. I couldn't take the pride anymore. I couldn't play. I wore a harness so I wouldn't fall over to strap myself to the side of the stage. You know, why didn't I just quit drinking? Well, I thought I drank to medicate the anxiety. So this was a, it was confusing. It was bewildering. But I knew I was going to die a slow alcoholic death. It was long and tedious each day. I didn't want to wake up each day uh, because I woke up to drinking. Uh, I made a pact with myself every day. I woke up at the top of the stairs. I said, today I'm not going to drink. Jazz, you're not going to drink today. I got to the bottom of the stairs and headed straight for the fridge for one medicinal beer to take the edge off that anxiety. That pretty much lasted, lasted till of eight, till of eight years. I checked into rehab, clean of alcohol. I wasn't able to stop for one day. Uh, I was drinking every 20 seconds. Uh, but if I stop, then I can deal with the anxiety later. Four days out of rehab, I came to the United States to celebration right here and met these guys here, Recovery at Celebration. The guy I met there who I'd called on the phone, uh, he met me outside the meeting at 6.30. He said, I I think you still have a drink in you. What do you mean? He said, well, you have a spiritual malady. I said, don't tell me about your your spiritual malady, pal. I've had Buddhist white light experiences. I've been in Jungian therapy. I know about this spiritual malarkey, spirit of the universe. I got a, I prayed without even knowing I prayed. I got a job with the band I wanted to work with. You call that a spirit of the universe or what? Well, 
He, he left it at that. I went into this meeting, you know, and I was the newcomer. And they talked about the program from the big book. They talked to me. I didn't know they were talking to me. They were talking about this book. Everyone had a book. I didn't know I'd walked into a big book meeting. Inadvertently, I thought everyone over here had a book. And uh, so I got a copy of this book. And uh, I took it home. I started to read it. It was written about me. There's a chapter called More About Alcoholism. It described my snakes and ladders. Uh, Snakes and shoots, you call it here. Uh, You know, I would go up the sobriety ladder. I would think I'd nailed it, throw the dice, and go down the chute, down the snake, to an ever worse relapse. Then I would try something else. Every imaginable remedy, every imaginable ladder, down every imaginable snake to an ever worse relapse. Uh, That's what it said in the book that was written about me. It described the summons uh, episode, you know, the terror, the bewilderment, the frustration, the despair. It described how I sought out sordid places. It described how the loneliness got thicker and blacker uh, as I became a subject of King Alcohol. I kind of figured if this book is written about me 21 years before I was born, the chapter that says there is a solution might be a clue. So I decided to go along with it. I went back to England. I found myself a sponsor. And I started to do the work. It was hard work. I still wanted to drink. I was white-knuckling it. I was anxious. I was terrified. I was petrified that I was going to drink. But I clung on there. I did the work. It took me about five or six months with a sponsor, someone armed with the facts, who took me through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, working the 12 steps, as directed, the clear-cut directions, which are suggested to do if I want to recover and get sober. And there's this other bonus that they told me about, you know, you get a life beyond your wildest dreams. So uh, I didn't believe that. I just wanted to stop drinking. I couldn't live in this hell anymore. Uh, So it was hard work. But you know, I did step five, step six, and step seven on the same day. I woke up the next day and something had happened. I knew something had happened. I continued the work. I made my step nine amends. And I began to live, or try to live, in steps 10, 11, and 12. Well, that was uh, from checking into rehab to today. 849 days. What do I have today? I have a a life beyond my wildest dreams. Just like it was promised. I have a new outlook on life. I don't have fear of people and economic insecurity. I don't have a job. I don't have an income. I'm not in a relationship. Uh, So I I really have not very much status. Uh, Because it was always about the money, the honey, and the status. I don't have any of that anymore. What do I have? I have contentment. I have peace. I have joy. I have happiness. I have friends. 
I'm going to say that pretty much all my friends are sober people, people in recovery. I come back to celebration now every um, yeah, every six months or maybe sometimes three times a year, sometimes four times a year. And uh, I'm coming back to the herd. I'm coming back to my tribe. I love it. Uh, what do I do now with my life that I don't have a job and I don't have an income? I do AA. I do recovery. I do this thing called prayer. What is that? I don't know. But I use it scientifically. It's contemplation. I contemplate on the words. I pray for other people. I pray for their recovery. I pray for people I hate. And it works. I lose the resentment. Uh, I meditate on problems. I meditate on uh, on things that uh, that I, I would like to create in life. Uh, it works. I guess I would call it these days. I would call it spiritual physics. I don't know how it works. There's a chapter that says how it works to recover, but how. It makes my life happy, joyous, and free. I don't know. You know, it's uh, the scientific prayer of contemplation that I use results in the spiritual physics happening. And the universe shapeshifts to unknown, uh, in, in unknown ways that I could ever have imagined through logic and reason. There isn't any logic or reason to it. Uh, I get up two hours earlier than I need to every day to uh, practice my prayer and meditation. I try and practice my program throughout the day. Uh, where does it lead me to? It leads me to step 12. I believe that the whole program is a spearhead towards step 12. What is step 12? It's... Uh, Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, yeah, as the result of these steps, I've had a psychic change, a spiritual awakening. I try to carry this message to other alcoholics and to practice these principles in all my affairs. What does that mean? Well, you know, the big book has taken me to another big book that I was always sceptical of. I'm not Christian, but I read this book these days and I read the messages in it. And really, what does this message say? It says, peace and goodwill to all mankind. It says, let's be nice to each other. You know, let's be a good Samaritan. Let's love thy neighbor. You know, let's think less of ourselves. And if we do that, we get results. You know, all we are is really like bees in a hive. You know, we're just there for the good of the hive. You know, we can all be good, busy bees. And <laughs> that's the only way I can describe it. It's my essential nature. My essential nature is to be a bumblebee in the world of humankind. And if I do that, it works. It works if I work it one day at a time. I guess, I hope, I pray that I will never drink again. And I have faith that I never will drink again. As long as I do this work one day at a time. 
It's dependent on my spiritual condition one day at a time. It's dependent on continuing, continuing, continuing to follow the clear-cut directions and to live this life. Uh, so, yeah, what are we looking for? World peace and the brotherhood of man. Let's make it Christmas every day. Merry Christmas. Fantastic. Uh, it was it was beautiful. It was beautiful. Now's now's the time where the defective characters uh, identify with uh, with your story. I'm Mike, grateful alcoholic. Thank you so much, Jazz, for uh, for taking time out of your day. There's uh, there's many things. I don't know. We've probably been to a handful of meetings, maybe like 10, 20 meetings together. I've heard a little bit of your uh, you know shares, but not really your story. You know, you. Uh, a lot of the shares are like, oh, yeah, here's what it was back then, but, like, here's what it is now. Like, real quick, you know, five minutes or less. So it was great to have a, a second to uh, learn a little bit about you. I also, when I was younger, played the bass guitar mm. for some of the same reasons. Um, I uh, I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts, and I growing up, I didn't think I had a really thick Boston accent. And uh, then I went to school in Chicago, and they told me that I, I did. And that was right before I turned 21. And I didn't drink a heck of a lot until that point. But as soon as I did, I was off and running. And my Boston accent went even more uh, into full gear. I think I actually tried to have more of a Boston accent than I even did growing up just because I was trying to be that, uh, that person. And that led me into a career which was in radio where I could actually, my on-air name was Boston for quite some time. And I was in Iowa working at a rock radio station and I was the party guy and ended up getting written up because I was on stage and uh, I started dating a stripper at the time that was in Iowa. And I don't share this in my story, but I could really identify when you're talking about the money and the honey. And uh, so I brought this girl and I got into many fights because she, uh, she would just find herself in really odd situations wearing just mesh outfits and not much else. And uh, I was so drunk on stage and made a fool out of myself because I thought somebody was poking fun at my Boston accent, which I was hamming up anyway, so I don't know why I was offended by it. But the morning guy said, hey, here's Boston. Yeah, say something with an accent. And I'm like, what am I, a monkey? Is this dance, monkey dance? So, and I'm, I'm embarrassed at the time, but I'm sharing this because I think a lot of uh, people have been in situations. I said, how are you effing retards doing? And I dropped the microphone, broke the microphone, flipped off the crowd, and said, F you guys, and I walked off the stage. So I got written up for good reason. But just that, like, agitation. And now people that, like, know me are like, there's no way you would do that. Like, why would you do that? And I know that that was um, the spiritual malady that you're talking about. I had none of that in my life. Like, I was my higher power. Um, and I'm so grateful for this program that teaches me. It's funny. Like, I, uh, I appreciate the stuff that uh, normal people... Uh, you know, are like, like I might have more than someone uh, now that 
the stuff I don't even focus on that I have, that I'm so grateful. On a good day, like I see everything that's great and shiny. On a bad day that I know that I didn't take enough time for a prayer or meditation, I'm not going to appreciate any of that. Uh, and I know that I need to get to a meeting and stay in the herd. And and that's what this uh, this podcast, I think, really does for us three guys because it connects us right to it. You know, sometimes it's easy to get lost in a meeting. What there's only like four people in the room right now that, you know, bring together how, uh, you know, we're in it together. We can get through anything. So that's, that's what I got with your uh, with your share of just staying in it. And honestly, yeah, it is Christmas every day. That's a good right. point that you brought that up. And Steven Tyler doesn't have a Boston accent anymore. Yeah. Is it, you think that's on purpose? <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dennis, you want to uh, want to identify? Sure. Thanks, Boston Mike. I, didn't, I want to make sure I don't spill your water. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks for coming out, Jazz. I appreciate yeah, it. You haven't complimented our studio, though. I love it. It's, it's high tech. Night, right? Yeah. James? Where did you get all this high tech stuff? You Christmas know. trees flashing. And the promises come true. Chestnuts roasting yeah. on an open fire. James spent a lot of times decorating it all. We mm. haven't taken down the Christmas decorations yet. they probably got six months or so to go. Okay. It's Christmas but every day, dude. That's true. <laughs> um, no, I, I really appreciate you coming out. I mean, I, I met you around the same time as James did. And you've always been a presence, even early on. Like, you... You wear your cowboy boots and you clack your way into the meeting and stuff. And it's always like, oh, there's jazz. All right. It's great. Um, but I, I remember um, what you said early on where you uh, talked about how you kind of put on this facade mm. to be cool and you were a hypocrite or whatever. You know, I can really relate to that. I think especially at a young age, you know, where society puts pressures on us and we want to fit in and stuff. We spend so much time like constructing like this image that we think is cool and that we want to be a part of and stuff like that. And it eventually it like wears out because there's no truth there. There's no realness there or whatever, you know, we, we exert so much energy trying to be like that we attract like the wrong type of people and stuff. And like, you know, the secret is kind of like, once we let go of all that and be ourselves and become truly who we are, we find that we are more comfortable, but then we also are surrounded by people who truly care about us and love us for who we are. You know, I think that was, that's a really important lesson to learn. Um, another thing is, is you mentioned the, the arrival, you know, mm. if I, make it to this rung of the ladder or whatever, then I made it. Everything else will be simple or whatever. And then, but then you get there and that, that, that next arrival is always further out. So you're always constantly chasing and you never arrive. You know, I mean, I do that too. I mean, in, I haven't got as much success in the arrivals as you have or whatever, but like it's, it's, we put this illusion out there, this fake like holy grail. And if we gain that holy grail, then then life's perfect. Meanwhile, like we're ignoring our life when we're doing that. You know, the everyday living that we do, the relationships of the people around us, the 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 stuff that we can do on this rung of the ladder. And in ignoring that, we never get to that next rung of the ladder because we're not focused on the steps to get there. We're only focused on this imaginary end, oh, you sure. know? Um, so yeah, I, I 
think that's what I like relate to the most out of what you've shared. And I think you hit on at the very end of your share, like I think the greatest secret of the universe of every philosophical school, every religious school, every sect, denomination, whatever, it all comes down to one thing. Let's be kind to each other, you know, and in doing that kindness to the world and our fellow man is where the peace comes from. It's where the serenity, the love, the, the good stuff comes from. You know, it's not about the money, the job, the title, the clothing, the whatever. It's really about what's in your heart and how can you give that away? That's the greatest secret of all, you know? So thanks again for coming out. Beans. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dennis. That was beautiful, Dennis. Thank you. Once again, oh, you made me cry. Jazz, thanks for coming out, man. You are my London brother. And, Thank you, James. And he, I, I smile every time I see you. And he always rents a convertible Mustang, and it is amazing, and I love it. I got a Jeep this time. <laughs> you got a Jeep? Yeah. Oh. Convertible. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Um, I, I can identify with a lot of your story. Um, you know, when I was young, I, was, I felt like an outcast. Um, I grew up, and I, I just I never felt good enough. And when I, when I finally did... I uh, drink for the first time. It was just like a can of liquid courage. Mm-hmm. Like I could do whatever I wanted. And and I took that and I drank all through high school, all through college. You know, I, I did not stop drinking. And just like you, uh, the more I drank, uh, the more things would happen that weren't necessarily good things. And eventually I did find marijuana and I did find cocaine. And when you throw that into the mix, you know, it's, it's a nosedive. And, um, you know, my life, it was, it was a slow fade, you know, and I, I never, I definitely had that spiritual malady and I, I tried to fill it with more and more stuff and more and more drugs and alcohol. I, I eventually, you know, I, I bottomed out, you know, and I, I had that white light experience that, that um, Bill talks about in the big book, you know. Some people, they get it over a slow amount of time, but for me, it, it hit me like a, a ton of bricks. And that from that point on, I knew that there was a God and he's always been watching after me. There's uh, another thing that you touched on when you... Uh, you got that summons, you know. I've, I've I pay child support, and I've sometimes I get stuff in the mail from the court. And to this day, whenever I get anything from the court, I get this this feeling in my chest, just like, oh my gosh, what is this? What are they gonna do? And uh, it's getting better though, you know. And I, I I used to just take them and just rip them up. I wouldn't even open them, yeah. which is the worst thing to do for a court, you know. You you got to be on top of that stuff. Um, and finally, um, I like that it is all about step 12, you know, what are you going to do to help the next person today? What are you going to do to get out of yourself? And I, I try to be that person. Uh, a lot of the times, um, one of my rules is, um, try to help other people and do things that you know that you should do, especially when you don't want to do them. Those are the times that really challenge you. And, uh, I don't know. I love you. Thank you. Thank you, man. I think I'm going to put a bow on this episode 17 of the Defective Characters podcast. Uh, Jess, thank you so much for, uh, for sharing your story with us. Um, we will be back next Thursday sharing more of that uh, experience, strength, and hope that you heard today. Thank you so much. Uh, episode 18 will be back next time. Uh, defective characters entirely ready to have all these character defects removed. Remember, let's make it Christmas every day. 
Peace and goodwill to all mankind, one day at a time. And we'll see you next time. Merry Christmas.